So here's what I thought we'd do. Um, next Wednesday, I have to go out of town and give a talk, so we won't have class next Wednesday. So Monday will be the last class before vacation. What you should do, I'll upload this again to Latte, but what you should do on the syllabus is just flip next week to and the week after vacation. That is for next week. Don't read Sydney, but read the Marlowe and um, there are three poets that are assigned for the week after vacation. Oh, you read Sydney for today? Yeah. No. No. Next week. No, it's still Spencer week. Um, next week is Sydney week. Astrophel and Stella. I mentioned it because I didn't want you to fall farther behind um, than you had already fallen. Um, you are among them that farthest cometh behind. <laughs> All right, one person got the illusion. Um, so uh, I didn't want you to fall still farther behind, but in an effort to help you not fall still farther behind, um, it seemed to me that it would be there'd be less reading for next week if you if we just flip the weeks, and um, then you'll actually be able to give Astrophel and Stella the time it deserves over vacation. Um, so that should be good too. As I say, it's a kind of um, novel in sonnets. Um, I think Sidney was thinking of it that way. You can figure out what's going on in Astrophel's life, in his experience, in his relation to Stella, um, by how the sonnets change. Although they're not um, particularly, no sonnet really tells a story, although some do, but the stories are, are just brief anecdotes. Um, what must have occurred between them is something that you can infer um, in the course of um, reading through the sonnets and the songs um, there. There's also other poetry by Sidney. In, so what you should read by Sidney over vacation, there's six sheets here, so just they're numbered now. Um, so just, just pull them out and then give, give back the rest. Um, what you should read by Sidney over vacation is the book-length version of Astrophel and Stella. It's a short book, but it's a book, um, which the bookstore should have. Um, as well as the other Sydney poems that are in this volume, um, poems not from Astrophel and Stella, um, but that Sydney wrote for other purposes. So you read Astrophel and Stella. Yes. That's good. You ready for a quiz on it? Sure. That's uh, nice. Wait, what should we have done for, for next Monday, though? Um, so for next Monday, it's what, does anyone have the syllabus with them? It's oh, yeah. um, Marlowe, Raleigh, and, and, and Southall, yeah. Um, so that's what you should read for Monday. It's not that much, and um, it's considerably easier than Sydney, and also considerably easier than Spencer. Um, so that's what you should read for next Monday. Today uh, we'll talk about Spencer, and I'll repeat, and I'll repeat it again on Monday, that we won't have class next Wednesday, but we will have an optional makeup class on the reading day. Um, so. Um, We'll, we'll figure out what we'll do as we get closer to that. Um, all right, so um, I brought in some sections from the Fairy Queen that are not in um, the Amorous Jones. Um, I hope you did do some more Spencer reading. Um, I don't know why I'm using the word more. I hope you read some Spencer um, <laughs> between Monday and now. Is my hope doomed to an early withering on the vine? No, okay, good. So, so 
a couple of you singulars did. Um, a couple of singular people did. Good. Um, and uh, the thing about Spencer is once you get to like him, um, you will have um, learned to like something that will give you pleasure the rest of your life. Um, C.S. Lewis, who is not a person I like very much, um, has a good line um, about Spencer. There's so many reasons not to like him, but he does have a good line about Spencer, um, which is, well, it's also, it's yuckily C.S. Lewis, even though it's a good line, um, in which he said, I never met a man who said, I used to like the fairy queen. Um, so, and that part's true. I mean, it's just put in such a C.S. Lewis way. But, um, yeah, it's, if, once you get to like the fairy queen, and most people do, um, did you? Yeah, just, just sell it. Just, wow, fantastic. I can't believe how good it is. Better than Inglorious Bastards. No? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's saying, that from him, that's a lot. Um, it is. Um, uh, once you get to like it, you always will like it. Um, what Spencer is doing is, is just so wonderful and so amazing and, and just uh, the perfect thing you would want. Um, so what I wanted us to do, I mentioned um, the Garden of Adonis and uh, the way time um, affects the Garden of Adonis. That's one of the great passages in The Fairy Queen. That's from book three. We were looking at the mutability cantos, which um, were published uh, 10 years after Spencer died. And um, what if you go to page 5, since you've all now marked up the pages, um, if you go to page 5 of the sheets, just take page 5 and 6, we can start with those. Um, what they are essentially the missing stanzas um, in the section of mutability in um, the Amorous Jones. So what happens is that mutability, as we saw on Monday, basically says she's the greatest of all gods. Um, and now nature, this is the um, frame or the background that I was telling you about, now nature is going to render her judgment on the claims that the various gods have made for priority, and in particular on mutability's last argument that she is herself um, the greatest of the gods because all gods um, are mutable. All gods change. Um, change is the condition for life. So mutability um, has given her argument. That's in the Emerus Jones anthology. And then it picks up after the asterisks, asterisks on the bottom of page five. Um, so having ended, silence long ensued. Nay, nature to or fro spake for a space. But with firm eyes affixed, the ground still viewed. Meanwhile, all creatures looking in her face, expecting the end of this so doubtful case did hang in long suspense what would ensue. To whether side should fall the sovereign place, that is, which side would win. To whether side should fall the sovereign place. At length, she looking up with cheerful view, the silence break and gave her doom and speeches view. Um, so first of all, notice about that um, how the very question of which of uh, mutability versus 
um, eternal rest, which is what we saw in those last two stanzas that Spencer wrote, the time that shall come when no more change shall be. Um, that very question is um, in the description of this very moment. Nature's, nature doesn't move. Nature isn't immediately going to a judgment, which would mean that nature too was mutable. Nature too, a character who changes what she's doing um, from one moment to the next. But mutability ceases speaking, and then there's long silence. That is, at least for a while, something that looks like the contraire of mutability. So having ended, silence long ensued. Nay, nature to or fro spake for a space, but with firm eyes affixed, the ground still viewed. All of those are anti-mutable adjectives and adverbs. Meanwhile, all creatures looking in her face, expecting the end of this so doubtful case, did hang in long suspense what would ensue. So they want something to happen. This, this suspense means they want it broken. So nature is, seems to be on the side of stillness, but all those who are waiting for her judgment are on the side of motion. And that's the balancing act that um, this argument is about. Which side will the scale finally go to? Um, at length, she looking up with cheerful view, the silence break, and gave her doom and speeches few. And here's what she said. I well consider all that you have said. Remember, that's the pronunciation. I well consider all that, you, that ye have said, and find that all things steadfastness do hate, and changed be. So there is um, a very quick universal judgment about living beings. All things steadfastness do hate. Um, since steadfast is generally, is that a term of praise or a term of blame? Praise, yeah. If you want the, if you want to um, use the negative, um, if you want, if you want to use the negative word for the same quality, what do you, what do you say instead of steadfast? Stubborn. Stubborn, yeah. It's always interesting to have um, synonyms except for the um, quality of good or bad in the word. Um, um, righteous or self-righteous, for example, steadfast or stubborn. But this is steadfastness. Um, and she says, all things steadfastness do hate and changed be. <coughs> but then she goes on, yet being rightly weighed, <coughs> Yet, are you okay? Yet, I once did that while Isaac Stern was trying to um, play a violin, a solo violin piece um, in San Francisco. And, well, I can say that I have been noticed by Isaac Stern. Um, boy, did he glare at me. But there was nothing I could do about it. And it really wasn't. I mean, I could have gotten up and left, but it, that would have been even worse, more disruptive. But he was not happy. Um, I will consider all that you've said and find that all things steadfastness do hate and change it be, yet being rightly weighed, they are not changed from their first estate, but by their change 
there being do dilate. So that change, so what she's saying is everything is always changing. And yet if you think about that rightly, and there's that word wade, which Spencer himself speaking in his own voice is going to pick up as um, when he, when I bethink me on that speech-wide layer of mutability and well it weigh. So that idea of weighing, nature is also weighing the situation. And she says that change is how they dilate their being. Fascinating word, dilate. It means to extend it, to keep it going. Um, dilated pupils are pupils that are spread out to be wider than they had been <coughs> before. So that by their change, their being do <coughs> dilate. So um, look at the words be and being in those lines. All things steadfastness do hate and change it be. And yet what she's going to insist on is not the change, but the be in that phrase. And change it be, yet being rightly weighed. They are not changed from their first estate, but by their change, their being, capital, do dilate. So change is how you keep your being going, how you extend your being through time, is by change. Um, I told you on Monday that um, Plato calls time the moving image of eternity. Um, and that idea would be that the movement of time, which seems to be um, constant or endless mutability, that's the image of eternity itself. The dilation of being is what makes being last. And that's what nature is saying, that by their change, their being do dilate. And turning to themselves at length again to work their own perfection so by fate. Um, anyone know literally what perfect means? What it means to perfect something? We, perfect has now come to mean without a flaw. Um, but the reason it means without a flaw is that, were you about to say? Work through. Yeah, it means, it means finished, um, worked through to the very end. So to perfect something is to put the last finishing touches on it so that it is now perfect. There's nothing else you want to change about it. And that's what we call perfect. Um, so to perfect something is to get it exactly the way it's supposed to be, to finish tinkering and tweaking it. So they work, but it means also, for the same reason, it means exactly what it should be, and therefore perfect. Um, so they work their perfection. They keep changing, but they change into what they were always changing into. And what they do, therefore, is they turn to themselves at length again. Um, and so they do their own perfection, do work their own perfection, so by fate. Then over them change doth not rule and reign, change being a synonym for mutability. Then over them change doth not rule and reign, but they reign over change and do their states maintain. Um, so there you get in nine lines a little bit of very intense philosophizing, um, a little bit of very intense metaphysics, and um, 
very intense um, exposition of the experience of time, of the experience of time among sentient beings. And so she addresses mutability as daughter, cease, therefore daughter, further to aspire. Again, cease, she says to mutability. Cease, therefore, daughter, further to aspire. And thee content, that is content yourself, and thee content thus to be ruled by me. For thy decay thou seekst by thy desire. And there again you get an extraordinary line that if mutability thinks everything is mutable, then among the things that are mutable is mutability. mutability itself. So her desire for everything to be mutable means that she herself becomes mutable. But what's the only thing that mutability could genuinely change into? If mutability actually reigned, how, what would happen to mutability? It would stop being mutability. Um, that's the point. So thy decay thou seekst by thy desire, but time shall come that all shall change it be, everything in the world, including you, and from thenceforth none no more change shall see. So that's the end of nature's judgment. Notice that it ends with a couplet. She ceases talking, somewhat suddenly, in the middle of a stanza, and then spends her comments. So was the tightness put down and whist. The tightness there is the goddess mutability. Um, the titans are the um, gods that the classical Greek gods displaced. Um, Saturn is the titan. Um, or Kronos and his son Zeus or Jupiter displaces him. The Titans are sent to Tartarus, Tartarus um, and then they rebel against the classic Greek gods. And the fight, the battle between the Titans and the gods, you'll see this um, in Paradise Lost as well, the battle between the Titans and the gods is a perennial battle in Greek mythology. Here the gods win. The Titaness is put down and whist. Anyone know what whist means there? No, it actually means silenced. So it's a 16th and 17th century word for silenced, um, made silent. Um, I think the name of the card game comes from that, but I don't know why. Um, the card game whist. Um, but it, it's, uh, that's a word that, if, as you read this poetry, you will learn. Um, so is the tightness put down in whist. And Jove confirmed in his imperial sea, then was the whole assembly quite dismissed, and nature's self did vanish wither, no man wist. Um, wist there means what? No man knew. knew. Yeah. Um, so nature herself, this veiled goddess whom no one really knows the truth or the depths of, she disappears after giving her judgment. And then we get, just to, just to finish it off since we looked at it carefully on Monday, but here, here you go, the eighth canto, wonderfully called Imperfect which means what? Not finished. Not finished. Um, probably not called that by Spencer, but only by the people who published it 10 years after his death. Yeah, and then there were two more stanzas, they said. This is all that remains. 
When I bethink me on that speech, why leer of mutability and well it way, me seems that though she all unworthy were of the heavens rule, yet very sooth to say in all thing else, she bears the greatest sway, which makes me loathe this state of life so tickle and love of things so vain to cast away, whose flowering pride so fading and so fickle short time shall soon cut down with his consuming sickle. Then, again I think, on that which nature said, of that same time, when no more change shall be, but steadfast rest. So remember, all things steadfastness do hate, but now we get steadfast rest of all things firmly stayed upon the pillars of eternity that is that should be that is contrary to mutability. Um, I'm wondering now about this addition. Um, for all that moveth, they must have had a spell checker. It's a real mistake to have your spell checker on. Imagine trying to type <laughs> Spencer out into an iPhone. Um, anyhow, they must have had automatic editing software that changed contrary to constraint. Um, that is contrary to mutability. For all that moveth doth in change delight. And that's just so such a great thing to say about living beings, that we all delight in change. Um, our anxiety about mutability is also deeply torn because moving and delighting in change, that's what it means to be a living being. And yet that gives mutability the power to destroy us. For all that moveth doth in change delight. That's Spencer's version of all things steadfastness do hate. All that moveth doth in change delight, but thenceforth all shall rest eternally with him that is the God of Sabaoth height. Oh, that great Sabaoth God, grant me that Sabbath sight. Yeah, this is, this is badly spelt because it shouldn't be. It's not three instances of the same word. Well, it's two Sabaoths and one Sabbath. Um, so sorry about that. I will, I'll, put, I'll put a better version up on Latte. Um, uh, so that's immutability cantos, and um, I'm hoping they're taking for you. Yeah. Um, sorry, can you quickly um, repeat what you said that nature is, like, what is nature weighing? She is weighing the um, argument between or among the gods as to who the greatest of all gods is. And... Um, and Venus says, look at me, all people fall in love, and I, I make the universe go. And, um, and Minerva says, no, look at me. All the, all the gods have reasons to think that they're the primary god. Um, and finally, mutability shows up. And then Jove says, no, actually, I'm king of the gods, and all the other gods are aspects of my own power. But then mutability comes and says, uh, not so fast. I'm actually the greatest because no god is steadfast. All gods are always changing their views, always doing different things and so forth. No god is steadfast. And so everything is mutable. And therefore, mutability claims the scepter as queen of the gods. And at that point, nature, who has been called upon to judge who really is the greatest of gods, gives her verdict, and that's what we've just been looking at, is her verdict as to who the greatest of gods is. 
Yeah. Um, why are there keywords like desire and speech like throughout the poem capitalized? Because it's um, an inconsistent and um, sort of uh, pure, purely intuitive sense, often on the part of a writer, often on the part of um, a printer, as to how much weight you want to give a word. So if you say something like, um, you know, we still capitalize common nouns like president, right? Um, and we'll sometimes say, you know, um, any president who does something like that uh, would be impeached, and that would be a small p president. Or we would say, the president um, is giving a press conference tomorrow at noon, and that's a large p president. And simply capitalizing like that um, gives you a sense of um, something much subtler than italics, but still a sense that um, this is what to focus on in this line. So it's a kind of helpful stylistic thing, um, the possibility of capitalizing nouns, which is pretty much gone from English um, with some relics like the president, the Congress, and so forth. Um, yeah, but it's only, it's only the ghost of a personification. Or you could say that personification is capitalization taken to, um, uh, to the next level. Um, but, you know, German nouns are still capitalized. And um, so if you read something in German, all the nouns are capitalized. That's just a rule of German, um, which is great if you're trying to learn German and you need to know that something's a noun. It tells you. That's really helpful. Um, German is hard enough that knowing that something is a noun is a good thing to know. Um, it can be a little bit of a problem if you don't know whether something is a proper noun or not, um, because capitalization won't tell you that it's a proper noun. Um, but mainly it's helpful rather than not. Um, <coughs> English used to be much, much closer to German in capitalizing most nouns. Um, and then as capitalization faded away, it faded away unequally, and it therefore became a stylistic resource. Um, you won't find, except in parodies, you won't find capitalized nouns now in English most of the time. But if you read the Constitution, um, you'll see that every second or third noun is capitalized. Um, you know, it's we the people with a capital P in order, to per, in order to form a more perfect union with a capital U. I believe that those words are capitalized, but they're not all capitalized. Or um, when in the course of human events, those aren't capitalized, human events, I don't think. Um, but uh, it's something that you kind of internalize stylistically, and it makes sense, but it's hard to quite say <coughs> how to understand the rules of it. It's like the rules of rhythm. You just kind of feel it. Um, yeah? Um, why the change at the end from the Greek gods to the biblical god? Um, well, that's allegory. <laughs> okay. Which is to say, no, 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 no. Which is to say, Spencer, like a, like a lot of people starting um, with medieval poetry, huh. Do you really want to hear this? And Lauren isn't even here today. Um, she, she opened the other can of worms about, about meter. Um, uh, there was really going back to Philo, that is going back 
to um, Hellenistic times. Um, there is a desire to um, assert the usefulness and the truth of both classical and um, biblical traditions. And there are various ways that people try to do it. Um, what Philo said was, um, Philo was a Jew who really liked Greek mythology, and he said, well, really, all the Greek stories are allegories or retellings of the biblical story. Um, so they're not, they don't, they're, Plato and Genesis, um, what Plato had to say and what um, Moses says in Genesis, they're really saying the same thing. And um, we have to understand that Moses was a philosopher, and he was giving philosophical stories, um, telling philosophical stories um, that Plato tells abstractly, but that Plato was also seeing the truth of the creation of the universe, which is something that Moses describes at the very beginning of Genesis. Um, this idea was intensified further by the fact that Virgil um, seems to predict a virgin birth in one of his eclogues. Do you know about this? Does anyone? Yeah, can you say more? Yeah. Um, he's talking about there will be a child born and that, uh, peace will come to all of um, earth and all, everything will be wonderful and it's going on and on. If you read it in our time, you can look at it and say, well, this looks like Jesus, but he wrote it long before Jesus. So. Yeah. So it looked like he was a prophet to, to the Christians who loved Virgil. It looked like he was a prophet. The Christians who loved Virgil decided to spell his name not the way he spelt it, V-E-R-G-I-L, but the way it tends to get spelt now, V-I-R-G-I-L, because that got his name to be also a foretelling of the Virgin. By, by spelling his name wrong, it could look like... Um, like he was again predicting the birth of Christ and his mother was said to be named Maria so um, although I think no one is sure what his mother's name is so the idea was look God is giving some insight to these great classical writers and this great classical these great classical works Homer then became read in Christian contexts um, throughout the Middle Ages um, by the Neoplatonists. Homer was read as actually writing secret allegories about the creation, um, about biblical creation. Um, so the idea was that what, they, what people were trying to do was, was um, preserve both traditions, be a believing Christian, and say that um, the classical tradition was connected and could give you insight into Christian truth, um, and also that the Christian tradition was philosophical <laughs> even when it didn't seem to be, and uh, the philosophy that it was expounding was like classical philosophy. So a standard way of doing this, you will see this in Paradise Lost, that what um, Milton says in Paradise Lost is that the Greek and Roman gods are actually fallen angels. and what happens is they're thrown into hell, they come to earth, and then they, among the sons of Eve, get themselves new names. That's what Milton says. Um, and um, the new names that they have among the sons of Eve means that um, devils are adored for deities. Again, that's quoting Milton. Um, that that they are real beings from a biblical tradition, 
that are that fool all but the chosen people into thinking that they're gods and not devils. Um, that's how Milton is going to describe things in Paradise Lost. Um, but a more standard description is that when the Greeks talk about Zeus, when the Romans talk about Jupiter, or when the Egyptians talk about Jupiter Ammon, um, they are talking about some distortion of the true god. Um, they have the stories, but the meaning of the stories has been distorted, and they don't understand them quite truly. Nevertheless, they're useful. Nevertheless, um, they, they um, refer to some truth that the whole world knew at some point in time. This is also helped by the fact that St. Paul actually quotes Euripides in one of his letters. Um, so as Milton himself says, the fact that Paul quotes Euripides um, is pretty good evidence that um, you shouldn't just say paganism, yuck, um, but rather you should say there's something here that needs to be um, perfected through the Christian knowledge that we have um, as, as Christians. Um, that's the general view. So Spencer, in doing allegory, is very much doing that. That is the whole idea of allegory, is that you are taking someone like Prudence riding the bicycle of whatever she's riding, carrying the urn of reputation. What is? Was it on the bicycle of propriety? Yeah, the bicycle of propriety, carrying the urn of reputation. Um, that um, the figures who do things like that, um, that, that we know that the greatest of all things is love, according to St. Paul. Um, the greatest of these is love. Um, and then if you're Spencer, you write a story in which love appears as a character. Um, and you write a story in which actually faith, hope, and charity um, come and help a character who's been injured. And um, when they do that, it's very convenient to use the Greek or Roman deities who represent just those things. Um, so if Venus can be made to represent Christian love, um, that's a good thing. And that's another way of, of um, intertwining the two traditions and saying that they come from a single source and that one casts light on the other, or that each casts light on, on, on each other. Yeah. Isn't that like, problematic for, I guess, Well, it yeah, it is problematic, and um, but problematic doesn't mean that it isn't done all the time. So, um, what people are trying to solve here is the fact that they have friends at camp and friends at school, and they really think that those two groups should get along. Um, and you know that that's a that's a human desire. Um, has anyone read the Red and the Black? Um, well, there's a moment in the Red and the Black where the hero or anti-hero or whatever you want to call him is in seminary and he's being tested and um, he has enemies in the seminary. And in the test, he's taking an oral exam and um, his examiner starts asking him about Horace and Catullus and Virgil. And he falls into the trap of answering those questions really well. And then the examiner fails him, saying, how can you be reading that trash? Um, but 
later on, um, the bishop of the of the um, parish that he's in um, also talks to him about uh, Virgil and Horace, and is enchanted with the fact that Julien um, knows them so well. And the point is that yeah, there's a stress there. There are those who think that you have to be monomaniacally. Um, uh, focused only on the truth as um, it is given by the church or the Bible, depending on whether you're Catholic or Protestant. And others who think what's so great about the church or the Bible is it tells you the truth to which all things, all traditions are in one way or another tending. And that as long as you know the truth, you will be able to interpret what's going on in the other traditions that you love, um, and see where they could come from um, that, and how you could see, how, how you could um, um, correct for the mistakes that have crept in, but still see that their fundamental greatness <coughs> is their fundamental um, connection to the truth. And um, that's a tension. Um, it's a tension that some people solve by saying, pay no attention <coughs> to um, classical tradition, and that other people solve by saying, yeah, pay, pay um, the right kind of attention to classical tradition. See what it's really about. See what's really going on there. It's really, really hard for any intellectual. Um, and all the intellectuals in the Middle Ages are in the church. Um, if you could read um, the reason you could read was that you were taught to read um, in the context of the church and taught to read by clerics. So all intellectuals in Christendom, um, not quite the same thing as Europe, but um, reasonably synonymous with Europe, all intellectuals in Christendom um, are um, in one way or another associated with the church, whether they're believers or not. But the most intellectual people in the church um, are reading um, the most intensely intellectual philosophy that's been written. So the greatest Ar Christian Aristotelian, does anyone know? The person who made Aristotle the absolute basis for church doctrine is Aquinas. Is that what you were about to say? Yeah. So if you read Aquinas, who's, who's regarded as the greatest um, and most, I mean, the first among equals, of, um, of, of the expositors of Catholicism. Um, if you want to know what the Catholic religion is, read Aquinas. Everything that Aquinas says, um, he justifies um, doctrinally on the Bible, but philosophically on Aristotle. And for him, Aristotle is of absolute central importance. Um, and um, one of the things that modern uh, philosophy and modern astronomy, one of the reasons that the Middle Ages lasted so long and that no one believed Copernicus and no one um, believed um, the findings of the new science is they went counter to Aristotle. Aristotle said it wasn't this way and Aristotle was always right and Aquinas has told us that. Um, so it's very, very hard to be an intellectual and not feel that the greatest philosophers in the Western tradition had something really important to say. Um, and 
Aristotle was at the time regarded as the very greatest. Um, people wouldn't think that anymore. I don't think they would put Plato as the very greatest. Um, Aristotle was Plato's student. Um, but it's very hard not to be blown away by Greek philosophy. Um, but if you're blown away by Greek philosophy and you believe in uh, church doctrine, then you have to find some way of reconciling them. And there's huge, huge intellectual labor goes into that. Um, Dante, some of you will know, um, in Purgatory and to some extent in Paradise, um, tells moral, um, has his characters give examples of whatever um, moral situation they're in. And Dante likes to give examples, parallel examples, from the Bible and then from mythology. So what he will do is he'll just um, tell parallel stories, um, a story that happens in the Bible which illustrates lust or treachery or sloth, and a story from Virgil or Ovid or Homer, although he didn't read Homer in the original, um, that also um, illustrates, through a very similar um, narrative, illustrates the same um, state of affairs. And um, in Purgatory in Dante, um, as, as um, Dante and Virgil, his guide through hell and Purgatory, Virgil, can't go to heaven with him, but can take him up to the border of paradise. Um, as they walk through purgatory, as they climb the mountain of purgatory, they pass um, um, reliefs, they pass illustrations, they pass carvings of the various regions um, that are emblematic of the various regions of purgatory where they are. And those carvings are um, representations of both biblical and um, classical mythology and classical stories. So for Dante, Purgatory is full of classical allusions, classical sculpture. Um, and that's, again, this really ferocious attempt to bring these things together. The idea of allegory makes it possible. Um, because the idea of allegory is don't take this as literally true. What's literally true is what the Bible says. Um, what Greek and Roman mythology tell you that's not literally true, but it has a fabulistic or a parabolic meaning that will cast light on what's literally true. Yeah. Does allegory always have to implicitly imply um, theology? Like, can there be a, a non-religious allegory? Yeah, I, th I think there absolutely can, but I don't think that in this age there was. Right. Um, no, I mean, Freud, all of Freud is, <laughs> is non-religious allegory. Um, that is to say, you know, the reason that, um, uh, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that, that, that tower over there is actually an allegory of... Um, so often it's, it's put in terms of symbols, but it would actually be better to say that they're allegories rather than symbols. Um, that's not a can of worms we have to okay. open now. The difference between allegory and symbol, that's really something we don't need to talk about now. Um, but the idea of an allegory is that there's a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between what seems to be happening on a level of naive um, unfolding of the story 
um, some guy named Everyman. I don't know who he is. Um, and the true meaning, the true and far more universal meaning of that thing that seems to be happening. So in Freud, for example, um, you dream of something. Um, I dreamt that um, the president, that I killed the president. Um, you know, scary dream. You're an assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. What's up with that? Um, but Freud will say, well, actually, what your dream is about is your hatred for your father. So the president, yeah, uh, as everything is. So the president is um, an allegory in such a dream for um, something else, namely your father. Um, so that's so that would be non-religious allegory. Um, for Freud, then God also becomes a non-religious allegory. God is an allegorical representation of guess who? Good, yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of it can be either non or reverse religious. But just to just to finish this up, since we started it. Um, what Dante, there's something called the fourfold principle of interpretation. Um, and this is a principle of biblical interpretation. Do, have people heard of it? Um, so the fourfold principle of interpretation is that you should interpret all biblical stories on four different levels. Um, there is the literal level. This has um, really happened. Um, it really happened that. Um, the children of Israel um, demanded that Moses do something about their thirst. Um, and Moses, without God's telling him to do so, struck the rock and water came out. And do you know what happened because of that? Tony? The promised land. After all that he did, um, he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. So yeah, that really, really happened. So that's the literal level. Whereas if you say um, Odysseus uh, tr um, swam to shore, no, that didn't really happen. Um, that's a myth. Um, so the difference, a major difference between biblical and classical stories is that the biblical stories are true and the classical stories aren't, according to the fourfold interpretation. But then there's another interpretation. There's um, 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 allegorical interpretation. Um, where Moses striking the rock stands for, I'm not sure what the standard allegorical interpretation is, but you could say it stands for um, rebelliousness against the way things are. Um, and that's a really bad thing to do. Then there is um, what is called a typological interpretation which is that although he doesn't know it, the scene in which Moses strikes the rock and water comes out of it is a scene that is going to be repeated, is a setup for a later scene in the Bible where the true typological meaning of that scene is made clear. Do people know what the later scene is? So do you know... Sometimes if you get a Bible, you'll see little letters um, in the margins that refer you to other parts of the Bible. Have people seen those? Um, what that's basically saying is, here's what you're supposed to be comparing this moment with. And if you look at Moses striking the rock in an Old and New Testament together, that will send you to something in the New Testament. Water and wine? No, close, though. Um, 
Christ, no, Christ being speared in the side and oh. water coming out of his wound. Oh. So um, the idea is that what happens, everything that happens in the Old Testament will get repeated, but in its true meaning in the New Testament. The Old Testament has Abraham willing to sacrifice his son in order to obey God's command. What happens in the New Testament? God sacrifices his son in order to make humans obedient to, um, to him after they had disobeyed. Um, you probably won't see because we won't, won't read this poem, but um, Herbert has a poem in which he has Christ speaking. And he says, man's Christ, on, Christ just about to be crucified, says, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. So the point is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden becomes in the New Testament the cross itself. And the fruit that Adam and Eve take off the tree now becomes Christ rehung on the tree in the most painful possible way. So the scene in Genesis of taking the fruit from the tree of knowledge becomes in the New Testament a foreshadowing, and that's where the term foreshadowing comes from, by the way. It's from typological thinking. It's a shadow <coughs> of the substance that will appear much later, and that's Christ hanging from the cross. Um, and then there's a mystical interpretation, um, which I don't remember or if I ever knew what the mystical interpretation of uh, the, actually I do, of the water coming from the rock and water coming from the side of Christ, which is that, um, um, that even for those who are sinful, God is the source of all light, of all life, rather. So that's not allegorical, that's mystical. Um, that even for those who are sinful, the waters of life come from God, um, even, if, even if he is wounded for them to happen. Um, so the fourfold principle of interpretation, um, literal, allegorical, typological, and mystical, um, the argument is that all biblical texts have those four different interpretations. Um, that, again, another a famous example is um, the beginning of Genesis is in the beginning, heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void, um, and um, the Spirit of God moved on the waters. Um, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um, do you know which book of the New Testament begins with the words in the beginning? Yeah. John. Yeah, and how does it go? Uh, in the beginning there was the Word in the flesh. Almost. Almost. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is saying what in the beginning God said let there be light and there was light. That's essentially what he's um, retelling is that <coughs> God said let there be light and there was light. Great story. But what that means is that that light is actually Christ. And the first thing that God in the beginning before there was even light there was, what happened before there was light? If you, if you, if you um, condense the opening of Genesis to, in the beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light. So what's before light? 
the word, namely, let there be light. So before there's light, there is the word, let there be light. So John says, okay, so in the beginning is the word, namely, let there be light. But as soon as he says the word, he says light into being. And so there is light. But since light has to mean the greatest of all things, namely the, the greatest of all God's creations, namely the Son of God, therefore what Genesis really means is in the beginning, God spoke the Son of God into existence by saying, let there be light. And therefore, the word of God is the son of God. That makes sense. Your words are your children. The word of God is the son of God. And therefore, we call the son of God all the time in Christian catechizing and Christian theology, the word. Um, in Greek, which John wrote in, ho logos, um, the word. And therefore, um, the creation of the word is also the creation of meaning and order and logic and all those things. Um, so those, that's, how the, that's, that's just a hint of the fourfold principle of interpretation. Um, and what the um, fourfold interpreters thought was don't apply the literal to classical mythology, but to the extent that the allegorical and the typological and the mystical conform to what we know is true from Christianity, it's OK to read them that way, to, to read um, Plato as telling you something which is either allegorical or mystical in the same way that Genesis is. And if you do that, you can also use Plato to shed light on Genesis. Um, this is the philosophy that Genesis was saying. So that's how those things come together. Now, a, a good example of this is that everyone loved Ovid. It's really, really hard not to love Ovid. Um, you don't agree? You... Oh, no, I do agree. <laughs> yeah, everyone loved Ovid. Now, Ovid was quite the dirty writer. Um, it's one reason that everyone loves it. Is that, um, there's just a whole lot of really pleasurable um, salaciousness in <coughs> Ovid. Um, Ovid writes about love all the time. And by love, you know, what he means is love. Um, love. He means, he means the Will Ferrell version of love. Um, and um, all these people love Ovid. So what do they do? The only thing they can do to maintain consistency is to say, when it looks like he's talking about erotic love, he's not really. No more than the Song of Songs is really about erotic love, which we know the Bible can't be about that. Um, it would be too dirty. So even though the Song of Songs is really dirty, um, it would be a mistake to think that was its final meaning. Because what is the mystical meaning of the Song of Songs? Do people know in Christian tradition? Do people know what the Song of Songs is? Shir Hashirim? Song of Solomon? Um, who's nodding? Yes, you are? What is it? I, I don't know details. I just know that some of the descriptions of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's almost shocking that it was canonized. Um, it, it does a lot of credit to the canonizers that they put it in um, the canon, that they said, yeah, Solomon really wrote this. Um, Gabriel, can you say more about it? Um, it's 
more of like a philosophical statement of how you should rule your life and how you should live and how you should... The Song of Songs? Yeah. There's like a really nice interpretation of it by... Uh, what's his face? Uh, An interpretation, yeah. Yeah. Um, what does it actually say? Lovey-dovey stuff. I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Kiss me. Let me kiss him with the kisses of my mouth. Um, you can interpret that as like God talking to people. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, she describes her breasts. Mountains. Yeah, clearly. The Grand Tetons. Um, sorry? Yeah, you know why it's got a French name. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, the Song of Songs is really about as dirty as you're going to find in the Bible, which is saying a fair amount. Um, and so what do you do? You interpret it, um, like What's-His-Face did. Um, I want to say the Maldim. Uh, Maimonides? Or Rambam? Maldim. Uh, oh. Different guy. Like, uh, I think it was like 1200. Not Rashi. No. OK. Um, I, I want to know what Rashi would do with him. <laughs> um, he would be very stern. <laughs> we know that. OK. So, um, but the point is that here you have this really, really sexy book of the Bible. And Solomon, you know, he had a lot of wives and a lot of children. Um, so it's not like he didn't know about sex. And here's this sexy song that he writes, which then gets reinterpreted, or interpreted, um, <laughs> as in Christian tradition. Anyone know what the Christian interpretation is? I think it's the, the marriage of Jesus to the church. Uh, the marriage of, of the church to, yeah. Yes, to God, to Jesus and to God. Um, so we are the, the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. Um, and so the Song of Songs is, are you rolling your eyes? Do you know it? Um, well, read it. I think, I think um, you will be disappointed if that turns out to be what it really means. Um, but the idea is, so here's this really pretty sexy book which can be made into a mystical interpretation <coughs> of the um, union of um, the church with God. And that's fine. Um, that's all good. Um, and there are reasons, from, there are reasons in, in the Gospels that you can read it that way. Um, one of the ways that Jesus confutes the Pharisees um, is that they ask him a really hard Talmudic question, which is Jesus believes in an afterlife. That's one of the things he's saying is that there's an afterlife. This is contrary to um, the dominant belief among the Jews at the time. Um, there's actually an argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees as to whether there's an afterlife or not. Um, and the Pharisees don't believe there is. Um, and um, there's no mention of an afterlife in the five books of Moses, for example. So um, there's lots of reason to doubt that there's an afterlife according to Jewish or Hebrew doctrine. Um, so Jesus says, yeah, there's an afterlife. And so they pose him this little problem. And they say, so what's going to happen in the afterlife? You know, are we just going to get um, the rewards that we deserve for this life? Um, that's the standard idea. So they say, OK, so here's the problem. Um, a woman has a husband, and he dies. And so she remarries, and her second husband dies. And she remarries again, and her third husband dies. And she remarries, and husband after husband die. Um, but they were all good, and she's good, and so then they go to heaven. Who's she going to be married to in heaven? Um, and 
uh, no Mormon answers. Um, so they think that's an unanswerable question. You know, basically, what you can spread out in time, in time, upon the pillars of eternity, you can't. So what will happen? And does anyone know his answer? I can guess. Guess. See, see, match wits with Jesus. Are you smarter? Are you smarter than a first century God? Pharisees comes from Godspell, so bear with me. I would imagine that he would say something along the lines of that there's only the God your father and that human ties would be dissolved and that you should just love all of your brothers equally and that there is no husband and only brother. Yeah, but there is a husband. And we know from Song of Songs. Yeah, God. All will be married to God. Uh, the church will be married to God. So, yeah, you got it half right. You will all be part of the true church, and the true church will be married to God. Um, sorry? Oh. Okay, so... It's not quite as snappy as render unto Caesar what's due Caesar. No. Um, which actually suggests that um, there isn't a theological imperative to cut taxes. But, um, <laughs> I actually got into a fight on disgust about this with someone, some fool. Um, so um, they read Ovid. Ovid is totally great. you got to love Ovid. What can you do? You have to decide that it's wrong to read Ovid as actually being about human beings having sex with each other um, all the time in really hot and interesting and unexpected combinations. You have to see all of this as actually teaching us that love conquers all and that, um, uh, that what Ovid is allowing for um, is a way of telling allegorical stories about love. So Spencer comes along, Spencer who loves Ovid, and Spencer who loves all the readers of Ovid from, let's say, uh, The Romance of the Rose onward, um, but even way before The Romance of the Rose. Um, and essentially, and maybe not quite knowing that he's doing this, he says, this is great. I can tell the wildest and wackiest stories in the world um, as long as I find an allegorical Christian interpretation that makes them make sense. Yeah. But what about with uh, the canto about Brito Mart and the house of Guzire? Yeah. It's, it's like the tapestries are all, to, uh, are all about these disastrous sex scenes of gods with individuals. Yeah. And it's meant to appall you to the, uh, I forgot the sorcerer's name. Um, Buserin. So, like, what, how does that fit into your description of Spencer trying to make the sexual scenes more normal? Well, no, no, no. There are many, 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 many ways to get sex scenes into your work. And one of the ways is to say, ooh, look at what evil Buserin was showing Britomart in The Mask of Cupid all these people having sex because he wanted her to sin. Um, so actually, look, the, we have a good example um, in, I think it's the first, no, it's not. Um, starting on, um, page uh, four. So what's happened here is, um, Just, just to put it briefly, 
Buserain is evil. And what Buserain, I mean, the, the, it's much more complicated than that. And um, uh, Buserain also stands for um, anxiety about um, having sex for the first time. Um, but on the simplest level of the Fairy Queen, we're not talking about Buserain, but Buserain is evil. Um, he shows tapestries in his house. There are lots of tapestries um, from classical mythology of um, everyone having sex with everyone else. And those tapestries are supposed to get um, Amoret, who is um, the person whom he's kidnapped. They're supposed to get her to say, yes, I choose sex rather than, than um, God or chastity. And they're also supposed to get Britomart, who has come to save Amoret. Britomart is a female knight. Uh, that's an interesting surprise in the Fairy Queen to think, oh, wow, yes, I don't know about this chastity stuff anymore. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, um, Amoret is raised by Venus in the Garden of Adonis, and one of the things that I gave you is a long and amazing description of the Garden of Adonis. Amoret is raised by Venus in the Garden of Adonis, and the Garden of Adonis is, give, is, a, is a deep philosophical allegory about the relation of form to matter um, in uh, sublunary mutable life um, under the aegis of time, of wicked time, as Spencer calls him. Um, but if you look at the bottom of page four, what's happening here is that Guyon, who is the knight of temperance, is going along with his guide, simply known as the Palmer. Uh, the Palmer stands for reason. So um, that's because God wills that he be ruled by reason and temperance, to quote Wyatt. Um, Guyon is the knight of temperance, and he has come to rescue from the bower of bliss, um, the young man who has been seduced by um, the really sexy um, uh, governess of the bower of bliss, whose name is Acrasia, a name which means weakness of the will. So um, here we are in the bower of bliss, this incredibly beautiful place where really, really, really desirable Acrasia is seducing, constantly seducing this young man who just can't tear himself away from the sweetness of her kisses and her more than kisses. Um, so Guyon and the Palmer have come to rescue him. Um, and they hear some music. There, whence that music seemed heard to be, was the fair witch, that is Acrasia, herself now solacing with a new lover, whom through sorcery and witchcraft she from far did thither bring. There she had him now laid a slumbering in secret shade after long wanton joys. So what's going on? Now he's slumbering in secret shade after long wanton joys. He's exhausted. Yeah, why? No, 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 no. It has to do with the church and... <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> Whilst round about them pleasantly did sing um, many fair ladies and lascivious boys that ever mixed their song with light, licentious toys. So they're singing and flirting. And all the while, so there he is asleep, um, being a guy. But she, not being a guy, isn't ready to go to sleep yet. And all the while, Right over him she hung with her false eyes, fast fixed in his sight, as seeking medicine whence she was stung. So she was stung by him and she wants more medicine from 
the very place that she was stung. Um, you can imagine what his stinger was. Um, or greedily depasturing depasturing delight, and oft inclining down with kisses light for fear of waking him, his lips bedewed, and through his humid eyes did suck his sprite, quite molten into lust and pleasure lewd, wherewith she sighed oft as if his case she rued. So, you know, it's really nice that Spencer is against this, because otherwise you might find this, like, hot. Um, <laughs> And then we get this amazing passage, the only song in the Fairy Queen. That is the only time in the Fairy Queen that a song is actually sung and we hear its words. The whiles someone did chant this lovely lay. Ah, so here's the song. Ah, see who so fair thing does feign to see in springing flower the image of thy day. Ah, see the virgin rose, how sweetly she doth first peep forth with bashful modesty that fairer seems the less ye see her may. Lo, see soon after how more bold and free her bared bosom she doth broad display. Lo, see soon after how she fades and falls away. So passeth in the passing of a day of mortal life the leaf, the bud, the flower, nay more doth flourish at the first decay, that erst was sought to deck both bed and bower of many a lady and many a paramour. Gather therefore the rose whilst yet is prime, for soon comes age that will her pride deflower. Gather the rose of love whilst yet is time, whilst loving thou mayest loving mayst love it be with equal crime. So that's a genre called the carpe diem or carpe florum poem, seize the day or seize the flower. Time is passing. Live while you can. We'll read more in Marvell. So we have this beautiful song. It ends. He ceased. And then get all the choir of birds, their divers notes to attune unto his lay, as if, as in approvance of his pleasing words, the constant pair heard all that he did say, yet swerve it not, but kept their forward way. Um, so here's this beautiful song. The heroes of the book hear it, but don't care. So the question is, are we not supposed to care? Are we supposed to read through this beautiful song and say, thank goodness I'm not seduced by the beauty of this song. I don't find it beautiful at all um, because of my puritanical rigidity. Um, is that the way we're supposed to feel? Um, who knows? Well, I know. The answer is no. We're not supposed to feel that way. We're supposed to stop and pause and love the song <laughs> and then love the fact that Spencer has an excuse for it, which is, here's a song you shouldn't listen to. Let me sing it for you now. <laughs> um, and that's what allegory makes possible. Um, all right. So um, I will put this on latte, but for Monday, um, it's the Raleigh, the Marlowe, and... Um, uh, 